0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Christian Nunez, the president of the National Organization for Women. Christian and I take a look back at the midterm elections and the red wave that wasn't. And we analyze the role that women played at the ballot box, including some historic wins by women who ran for office. We also take a look forward. The 2024 election cycle has only just begun. And we talk about the important role that women will play in the 2024 cycle, particularly the role that Black women will play. And we talk about what's holding us back as we seek political power. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Christian Nunes. Christian Nunes, welcome.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks for having me today.
0: So we're kind of in this election cycle midway point, And in a few months, the 2024 election cycle will be in full swing, probably by the summer right? But, you know, I have to say, looking back on the midterms, that was probably the most anxiety inducing midterm cycle.
1: (laughs) I would agree. Did you feel the same (laughs) way? So what were
0: you going through? You and the people at your org, what were you thinking? I think we were all the same way. It was
1: so much at risk and so much at stake. I mean, literally, we were just saying our lives are at stake in these midterms. And it was so anxiety provoking. I completely agree with you.
0: No, exactly. I mean, I think that what happened on January 6th, that really just highlighted what was at risk if we lost, like, you know, any seats, any power. And, you know, that didn't happen. (laughs) And thankfully, we did lose some seats, but not as much as people projected. Right. And what didn't happen was the red wave. Thankfully, you know, people were talking about the red wave. It wasn't even magenta. Right. And I think we can clearly attribute that to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the turnout by women. Absolutely.
1: We have contributed to the turnout (laughs) of women and the overturning of Roe because that really, I think, did a couple of things. I mean, it made women angry, mad as hell, and determined to get out and organize harder than they probably have organized and get out and vote and more than they've done in a very long time. I think it gave everyone a reason to feel like they were impacted and needed to make sure that their rights were counted and recorded in this election.
0: So here's something that I don't get. Yes, women were mad as hell. It was really clear that women were really mad. I mean, like even after the anger that people saw following the 2016 election, then the, you know, the whole quote unquote pink wave following the 2018 election. Right. For me, it was clear that women were angry and they would turn out. But, you know, all of the pundits and all of the forecasters, they didn't, they didn't see that. And I guess maybe it's a simplistic question, but I don't understand why. Like, why do they keep, you know, discounting the power of women at the ballot box?
1: Well, I think it's something we have to think about overall. And if we look at just societal's view of women's value, it continually is the same that we just don't really give women and see women as whole. Um, we could say it as much as, you know, people can say it like, oh, yes, no, I, I believe in empowering women. I believe in this. But when it comes down to we don't want to give them their full rights, we don't want to give them their full protections. We don't want to make sure they can have secure and sustainable lives because we don't have a legislation and resources for them to have, you know, lots of things to help them to be sustainable in their daily lives. So I think society as a whole and those with the most power really don't believe in the full strength of women and women's capabilities. And that's unfortunate. And we keep showing them that we are capable, but they still just really don't fully believe in it. And I think also the fact, you know, if we look at it too, we still aren't even like, we're still fighting over like the enshrinement of, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment (laughs) to be counted, included in the constitution under our sex. I think we still continue to see that they're not really taking women as valuable contributions to this country as they should even though they use us and they need us, they still not recognize us as whole
0: contributing individuals. Exactly. I completely agree. Well, one of the things, the second thing I wanted to ask you about that and something we don't talk enough about is how conservatives and the GOP deploy women mm-hmm. as you know as part of their messaging campaign and how they message to women because that has power too. It's not the power that we want, <laughs> right. but it's proven to be powerful. I think there's one stat that I saw that I haven't really heard a lot of people talk about was the fact that, you know, even though Trump lost the election, he may not agree, but he lost the 2020 election, his performance among women as a whole, collectively, all races, you know, all ages, did not really take a hit. It, mm-hmm. it actually kind of went up a little bit. You know, I think on the Democratic side, we had like more turnout, but his turnout, just overall, percentage point-wise, did not actually go down. And when I think about how the gop are energizing women on their side they're actually kind of using these made up issues right they're kind of you know right. you're saying that your biggest threat is you know drag shows or like books or you know critical race theory which doesn't you know exist in in grade schools right right so like exactly. they, make, they make up these things to energize women and, and you know when i think about you know i'm a democrat and i listen to democratic messaging and i know that these things are true you know like the fact that you know conservatives are taking away reproductive rights they are you know, not doing anything to help with our gun violence epidemic and all of these things that have been proven to be bad for women. It just always confounds me as to how they can get any woman to come out and vote for them, let alone improve their performance among women. I don't know if you have an answer for that or why that why that works. Well, yeah, Jennifer, I think that we have
1: to look at I mean, if you look at the exit polls from like the midterms, right, it showed that abortion was one of the top issues for voters overall. But I think what the part of the GOP strategy and the conservative and the anti abortion and extremist strategy. And their strategy has really been to use scare tactics to scare voters. And this is part of how they've been able to engage women with this kitchen table talk, right? To talk to them about their personal safety, how people are going to view you, what they're going to do to your children, you know, how is this going to hurt you? It's been the scare tactic that they've been using to really make them feel like they actually, with their misinformation and disinformation, are the ones who are looking after their safety and trying to protect them and their families. So they are misinforming and disinforming intentionally to make those individuals and those women feel like we are the ones that are going to protect you. We are the ones looking out for your family's best interest. You need to come on our side. And for some, especially some who have not been enlightened, who <laughs> who are not practicing anti-racism, who are not practicing intersectionality. And who are only, you know, really thinking about like internally, like what's affecting them and their household. That works, right? <laughs> that's working for them because it's resonating with their safety in their lives and their external and their internal local control and, and what's working for their lives. So that's working. And that's how they're getting them to come. And they're able to use other women who think the same way to be the spokesperson for other women who fear for their children's lives and children's safety and their safety to be their messengers.
0: You are exactly right. Again, I mean, that, that kind of goes back to the point where I started with, you know, people like Lauren Bobert, you know, mm-hmm. taking photos with the guns and her kids. Right. She's the perfect package. She's the perfect mm-hmm. messenger for that kind of fear based campaign that they're running. Right. Yeah. And I also want to say,
1: too, is that there's a race baiting thing that happens there where they're using very delicate white women <laughs> who the world tends to give grace to, right? Right. And see as very gentle and need protection to be their messengers. And so when the world sees this, they say they need protection. (laughs) We want to make sure they're okay. And we don't want to have that conversation. (laughs) We don't want to acknowledge that, but that's the reality of what's really happening as well. So they are playing on those emotions of those who feel like they have to protect those women. And they use those women who appear to be needing protection and then uh safety to put those messages out to everybody else because then everybody is gonna to want to go to make sure they're aligning to do things to protect them.
0: You know, you're exactly right. That's a whole <laughs>
1: that's another whole can of worms, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a whole other episode. And we can go down that. But you know, ah, uh, that yeah, we could talk about that for a long time, but you know, there are other black women are mothers, <laughs> you know, Asian women are targets of political violence, right? Yes. So if we really want to be real about that, but, but of course, we've talked about the fact that their messaging isn't honest, right? So, so that's right. misinformation, disinformation, mis- right. exactly. But, but, you know, one of the things that's most impressive about women's turnout in all of these most recent elections is that we know that voter suppression is getting worse, Right. Yes. You know, when I think of voter suppression, when I hear that phrase, I think about it in terms of race. And that's probably one of the biggest, you know, areas where voter suppression is happening and is most effective. But there is a gender element. Absolutely. Because, you know, women are caretakers of children and older parents, they make less and having less time having less control over your professional schedule, you know, having less money. And also the whole name change thing when women get married, all of those things factor into women having less power. You know, that's their point at the ballot box. And I'm wondering if Democrats generally, we should broaden our messaging, say, you know, hey, you know, voter suppression laws, they hurt people of color, they hurt Black people, but they also hurt people broadly, particularly women. I mean, would that help with our messaging? I
1: think so, because really voter suppression laws affect persons BIPOCs and persons of marginalized communities. And that includes women, right? Poverty, women, those persons with disabilities immigrant statuses, they they affect women. Those low income earners, a lot of these are women. You know, when we look at these marginalized communities, majority of those who are directly impacted are women. And I think we have to start really calling this out and talking about how much women are directly impacted in the intersections of all of these different communities and identities. When we're looking at economics, we're looking at race, we're looking at gender, we're looking at everything intersecting and women are the most directly impacted and suffering and experiencing the oppression and injustices and all these different things and with voter suppression as well. When you, like you just named out, we're looking, we're talking about changing of the name, lowest income earner. Can you take off the time to go vote? (laughs) Can you leave your family? Do you have childcare? Because we don't have universal childcare, Do you have paid family medical leave? We don't have that universal either. You know, we have to talk about these things on who is being directly impacted by those things and how all these contribute to why women are impacted. And when we continue to not have these federal legislation um, bills in, in place that we are just making it that much harder and contributing to the suppression of the vote of women.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a whole can of worms because all of these things are intertwined, right? The things that affect women, yeah, right? Like the lower exactly. pay, the fact that we don't have paid leave, you know, we don't have exactly. adequate childcare and all of that kind of contributes to, you know, reducing our power at the ballot box. But, you know, we exercise it. We exactly. try. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would say, but that's the thing, that's the beautiful
1: thing about women, right? <laughs> and the strength of us is that even dealing with all those things, we still turn out, yeah, we still exercise our right to vote and we still will not back down. So that's why I think it's beautiful. Even through all that, we are still not allowing anyone to defeat us. We're still letting everyone know that we will organize until we have equity and we'll organize until we have our rights restored and we'll organize until we are respected you know, and seen as whole persons. So I think that's the part that we have to talk about that's important. And that's the part we have to focus on is that women are not going to stop because role was overturned. Women are going to keep pushing like we've done continuously through history until we in demand our rights, like every other movement that's happened. Women have been in every movement, the front lines of every movement. We may have been unsung and not discussed and talked about, but we have been on the front lines of every civil rights and human rights movement. And we're going to continue to do that. And we're going to continue to push and we're going to continue to make sure our rights are heard and we're going to continue to turn out. So that's the power of women, whether people want to recognize it or not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, this whole conversation reminds me of the work of the brilliant scholar, Carol Anderson, author. You Yeah, she's amazing. It's amazing. I had her when I had her on the electorate, I, I just lost it. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm talking to Carol Anderson. You know, she she wrote one person, one vote. And there was a part of our conversation where we were talking about the fact that these voter suppression laws were originally intended to target, you know, black voters and keep us away, exactly. but they've just kind of spread, right? Mm-hmm. They're affecting larger groups of people, mm-hmm. larger classes, and that's fine with them because it helps, you know, the conservatives win. You know, but I want to talk about reproductive rights a little bit more and abortion in relation to elections, because one of the things that pundits keep missing in their analysis of this is the fact that I'm thinking back on the messaging during the midterm election cycle. They kept saying, well, you know, women don't care about reproductive rights as much as they care about the price of eggs. I'm like, oh God. Okay, listen, abortion is an economic issue. I know we've talked about this, but I wish that that messaging were clear that abortion rights is an economic issue. It absolutely
1: is an economic issue, and there's no other way to see it than an economic issue. When you think about the impact of a, a couple reasons why some women choose to have an abortion, and part of that reason is for economic reasons, right? And then we also talk about the cost, you know, that goes into seeking an abortion and had the impact of that for those women who are already on the lower income spectrum. You know, it's a major economic issue. And now we have states who are trying to put bounty laws out and criminalize women and give them fines and fees and criminalize providers and making it that much harder and making it that much harder for them to have these lives and thrive. Everything comes down to economics. You know, the healthcare part, the fact that by even having these abortion bans more people are going to be suffering more maternal mortality. And that's the economic issue as well. It's not just a reproductive issue. You know, people have to decide to either choose to go to work and miss pay, which can jeopardize their housing, um, their childcare. I mean, these all intersect. And it's important that we talk about this and not look at it just as a single issue, it's an intersectional, multi systematic issue.
0: Yeah, if I could go back to my 2009 self, you know, when Obama took office, and if you told me that we'd be having this conversation, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, birth control is even at risk, I wouldn't have re- believed it, honestly. It really, if we think about it, this is
1: like nonsense, right? So you say you want to force birth, but then also don't protect yourself. We don't want you to even have the option to protect yourself from having birth. So what are you pushing? You're pushing control. You're pushing control. That's all you're pushing. Right. And, and you're politically weaponizing it as well. So, but the midterms, you know, I think when we talk about it, we see that many people supported abortion access and they voted for that. There are a lot of ballot initiatives that came forth. And the ones that wanted to enshrine abortion rights within their constitution and protect them overwhelmingly were approved. And the ones that wanted to criminalize it, the ones that wanted to make it and ban it, were failed. You know, so that's showing that voters all over the country do not agree with restricting abortion access, or do they believe that the states have the right to control and bodily autonomy?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I make this point so often, and I apologize to the listeners, but, you know, that's why it's so important to pay attention to what's happening at the state level. Absolutely. Because a lot of good things can happen at the state level. A lot of bad things can happen, but a lot of good can happen. You know, pay attention to those ballot initiatives pay attention to who's being elected to your state legislatures. So that's really important.
1: Yeah, and I would say too, the state level, that's impacting you the most your everyday life more than anything. And so it's so important to pay attention to what's happening on those ballot initiatives. And at the state level, because that's what you're going to experience and affect you every day, most directly than anything.
0: Actually, talk about some good things. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, I know, I know there were some notable wins that happened during the, you know, by women. Yes,
1: and, there's some wonderful wins. Yeah,
0: because the National Organization for Women, your your organization, did you you endorse some candidates, right? So talk about what's the most notable wins that we should talk about. Well, there
1: were so many wonderful wins. I would say this midterm election, and women really turned out to not only vote but also run for office. And women of diversity turned out to run for office and actually so many of them won. So I think it's so beautiful to see that. I mean, you could think about, you know, a Catherine Cortez Mastro, who became the first Latina senator from Nevada. Summer Lee in Pennsylvania became the first African-American representative coming out of Pennsylvania. You know, we have governor of Massachusetts, you know, there's Mar Hilly. I mean, there are so many amazing first timers <laughs> who made first in history. Women who really took office, either state level or at the federal level, that really just were amazing. And I think it showed how many firsts we had, but how also people showed up to support them. And they ran amazing races. And they were doing amazing work before they even got to those like top level positions. So I think it's just wonderful to see how we have so many firsts, the diversity of firsts we have that are filling the halls of Congress and filling some top positions in the state as governors and attorney generals. You know, I think it's just such a great thing that we're seeing happen.
0: Yeah, I think we should, you know, celebrate those more.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, when you think about it, you know, for a long time, you know, United States America really had less than like what 3% women hold elected official offices. And majority of those who did were were just, you know, white women, but, but now to see the halls of Congress and diversity, it is such a beautiful thing to see, not only with the diversity of race, but diversity of age and diversity of gender identities and things like that. I think it's such a beautiful thing to see that we are, as a country, finally focusing on persons' ability to lead and not being sidetracked by what they look like or what society tells us we should think about them.
0: Yeah. And and so this isn't necessarily an election thing. I guess you can connect it to the 2020 election. But, you know, the Biden administration and their appointments of women, you know, yes. at, the, you know, for justices, right? You know, <laughs> historic levels of women being appointed as justices. Absolutely.
1: And also, you know, just doing wonderful killing it like everywhere. Right. They're just doing amazing work and then just really showing their leadership and showing that they deserve to be where they're at. And for so many times they weren't elected. Why? we? Because probably because there were women. But now in those positions, they're excelling because they are, deserve to be there and they're capable and qualified to be there. So it's great to see those them in those positions so that they can show everyone that they deserve to occupy those seats.
0: Right. And Georgia, you know, came through again. All eyes were on Georgia, you know, particularly the governor's race, probably. But, you know, the, the um, special election that followed that, the Senate race. But I just want to point out that, you know, Georgia came through again. You know, Asian-American voters in Georgia actually had the largest increase of voter turnout compared to any other group. I think it was something like the number was like a 90 percent increase or something like that. Oh, wow. It was pretty big. Mm -hmm. But you cannot decouple, you know, the political violence that we're seeing right now in the news Mm -hmm. and, you know, the increased turnout for Democrats in Georgia amongst the AAPI community and all Mm. communities of color in Georgia. Right.
1: Yeah, and I think that is so great that we're seeing that, and that we're also talking about it and representing it and um, bringing attention to it. I think sometimes the AAPI community does not get enough attention and support, you know, and recognition as they should for their role and just improving and encouraging, you know, voting rights and this movement. And so it's good to see that. But we also have to, like, all come in, in solidarity as well to make sure that we are creating safe space for them in this movement as well and standing in solidarity with them as they are also are experiencing so much API hate right now. So I think it's just really important that we're working in solidarity with their communities and making sure we're giving them places to lift up their voices and their narratives and this work that we're doing.
0: Right, I mean, I think, you know, if we focus on our allyships, mm-hmm. I think that's when you will really see women and women of color create this really powerful coalition. Absolutely. This really powerful voting bloc. I firmly believe that. Absolutely, But I want to talk about Black women and their roles, Mm -hmm. their roles specifically in the midterms and in all elections, really. Because, you know, I think that Black women have served as, you know, political harbingers, really. You know, they know where the dangers are to our democracy. They know where they lie. And they know which direction to go to move us closer to that, you know, that vision of America that we've promised, you know, for centuries. You know, I want to preface that by saying that I'm not just, you know, saying some kind of like simplistic cheerleading or black girl magic, right? Black women are strategic, pragmatic mm-hmm. voters because they have, you know, historically been closest to America's pain points longer than any other group, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what do you think the role of black women will be in the near future and just, you know, in these past cycles?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for acknowledging that and <laughs> speaking that too. Because yeah. I think sometimes we don't talk about that And a big part of that ability to be strategic is because of the role and experience of the lives of black women. Right. So they have to learn to be strategic. We have to learn to be that way. We have to learn to figure out how to work best to get our end goal accomplished. And I think that black women will continue to be extremely important in the upcoming 2024 election, is, as they have been in the major elections that we've had, not only like running for roles and offices, but also leading campaigns. I mean, I think you look back to the presidential campaign, the last campaign majority, if not all the Democratic uh, presidential candidates had Black women as some of their lead campaign staff, you know, <laughs> who are helping them with their strategy and help them, you know, in their office in their position, including Biden. And I think that we will continue to have to make sure that not only are we calling on Black women (laughs) to help, but we also are going to be uplifting and supporting Black women when they need support and resources as we're going into this next election cycle as well. But we still also need to make sure we're supporting them in statewide seats because we still don't have any, if you really think about it, we still don't have a U.S. senator that's a Black woman. There are not any Black women governors as well. So there still is work that needs to be done. But I think that Black women will continue to turn up and turn out. They'll continue to be strategic and organized. They'll continue to find the best ways to accomplish the goal and the long-term outcome that is safe and helpful in getting that job done. And we just want to make sure while while they are helping others, we want to make sure that others are helping them as well.
0: You know, I don't know if there's an easy answer for this question. I'm sure there's some analysis that's been done, but I wonder why we don't have yet. I mean, I know that Stacey Abrams' race in Georgia was a factor, but why we have never had a black woman governor or why we don't have anyone in the Senate. I know that, you know, Kamala Harris left the Senate, Mm -hmm. you know, but why is it so much easier to, I guess, you know, to see black women seated, you know, in the house or at the mayoral level, you know, what, Mm -hmm. what is it about the gubernatorial seats that make it harder? Maybe there isn't an easy answer. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, there, there is no easy answer and it's not a comfortable answer, but I think that it goes back to like the value of women you know, we don't even see women in general as whole. I mean, imagine the way we see black women. Yeah. Black women, you know, are seen less than the whole of the average woman, you know, and less than a white woman, and less than an Asian woman, and less than most women, you know. So I think that how this country values women and black women has to shift, has to have a major transformational shift and in a positive way, in a healthy way in order for us truly to be able to get behind a Black woman in a positive way. There is so much misogyny and sexism and racism that Black women deal with in leadership. And I think even Stacey Abrams' campaigns are great. I mean, how qualified was she, right? Um, Right, right. You know, BP Harris deals with it. And it's like when you stand up for yourself and you are strong and assertive, it's like your character is assassinated. And you become this aggressive, overbearing, you know, it's like, how many ways can I assassinate a Black woman's character today? And that's what a lot of times I think many of them face. Instead of finding ways to view them as just strong, qualified leaders, there's a thing that they deal with. And so I think overall, how society, that has to shift in ways to support and give Black women grace and not hold them to an unrealistic standard um, has to take place. And we have to not put them in this, like degrading, misogynistic box that we tend to do. We don't wanna have a conversation, people don't wanna have a conversation, but that has to happen. And we have to be honest about it and, and talk about colorism and that too. And then when we do have black women, what does that look like? <laughs> you know, what do we accept? And then in size and and it, we have so many things we have to talk about in that conversation about why we don't have black women and how communities can come forth and support black women in their leadership. That has to be truthful and honest because otherwise we'll never get there.
0: Yeah, and then there's also kind of a practical factor in relation to, you know, just the number of seats. I mean, there're only so many governor seats. And, you know, you've seen the onslaught that vice president harris has has experienced. Right. and and Stacey Abrams imagine, you know, having to fight for those few seats at the table and overcome that at the same time, right.,
1: you absolutely. Know? I think that, you know, we look at total public representation. I think we just have to continue to move toward parity and looking at how do we fix parity? because, like you just said, there are a few seats, right? But we shouldn't be looking at them as for women to have to fight for these seats. And our country has to move away from thinking that it's a woman candidate to that it is a qualified candidate, and that's how parity exists. And I think that's the mind frame and the mindset that we want people to have, because right now as we continue to isolate it by gender, it creates bias in our political system, and it's going to create injustice. And so we really have to figure out how do we shift our mindset and the work that we're doing to not continue to identify women candidates as women candidates, but just qualify candidates, because it's not just the so women of color, it's women in general that experience this overrating amounts of aggression and misogyny and attacks and, you know, and when they're trying to run. And so we know the ones that have succeeded are, you know, amazing. And even the ones who didn't succeed were amazing as well. But we have to work on ourselves as a country to shift so that we can support amazing candidates (laughs) and not continue to separate by gender. Because as long as we keep doing that, we'll never have parity in political representation.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, what is your... Oh, I wanted to make one other point before I (laughs) close out here. But I just wanted to say, because we started this conversation talking about you know, how black women were, you know, pragmatic voters. And I was just thinking about, you know, myself, you know, as a black woman, as a constituent and as a voter with black children, you know, I can't afford to pussyfoot around with candidates who are not willing to fight against political violence or aren't willing to, you know, fight, you know, gun violence. Right. Right. It's a life or death situation for us speaking of that what is your biggest worry for the 2024 cycle you know what what do you what are you inspired by and what are you worried about I know I'm worried about political violence but I'll let you answer the question no
1: I mean political violence is a huge concern for me and going to the next presidential election because we saw what happened the last and I feel that there has just been continuing like a brewing that's happening and so I'm really concerned <laughs> as we have more election deniers And more individuals who just won't accept (laughs) defeat or who want to continue to do just feed into this campaign of, you know, we have like the Santos with the anti-woke and which is basically, you know, anything anti-ethnic and race is what he's saying, right? (laughs) We have all these code words they're using. We have all these anti-woman campaigns. We have all these things that are all in some ways inciting some forms of violence. So I'm very concerned about that and how that's gonna come up in our next presidential election. And I think we have to be prepared for that. And also I'm really concerned about the attack on women as well, because there's a war on women right now that's also happening. So those two are my biggest things and how that might manifest in a presidential election too in 2024. So I think we have to really think about how do we find ways to help people organize and get them out there, but also keep them safe.
0: Well, Christian Nunez, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for all of your work with NOW.org, the National Organization for Women. I'd love to have you back as we get deeper into the 2024 election cycle so we can dig into some of those topics that we couldn't get to this time around. Um, But truly, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.